Hello, I'm Emma Jane Purcell and welcome to the first ever episode of Fail Harder, the podcast where I chat to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. Joining me on the podcast today, I have the wonderful Rory O'Neill, aka Panty Bliss. Like I, I have struggled with the mainstreaming of drag thing, not just in the general sense, but also in a very personal way for years. Like I would sit there thinking, can I still be the kind of discombobulating, radical, you know, confronting drag queen that I want to be always and be on the cover of the RTE Guide. Panty is Ireland's most famous drag queen and self-styled accidental activist. Panty has written and performed hit theatre shows and is the landlady of Panty Bar. She was a forerunner in Ireland's Yes campaign for gay marriage and took to the stage of the National Theatre with a speech that became an international sensation. But today Rory is not here to talk about success. He's here to talk about failure. Hi. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today. You're delighted that I turned up. I'm delighted that you turned up. Yes. <laughs> well, already failing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've started on a good note. Um, so I'm just going to explain the format to you before we begin. Yes, that's probably a good idea. Yes. So I have 20 questions in front of me mm-hmm. and they are all numbered at random. Some are more straightforward and some are a little unconventional. Uh-huh. And in the spirit of failure and trying to assert control over what life might throw at you, uh-huh. you get to pick the numbers. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Any number between 1 and 20? Any number between 1 and 10, 20 at your heart's okay. desire. Is that it? We're going to start? Yeah, ready okay. to go. Unless you have any questions. Or seven. <laughs> seven. Why number seven? Well, I was about to say, does everybody pick seven first? It just seems like the number that you pick when you're trying not to pick, you know, yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. odd one and it's... I it's the number, number I would pick as well. Yes, uh, <laughs> all right. So did you ever fail anything in school? Oh, uh, you know, um, I can't specifically remember, but yes, of course. Of course, I failed exams or something at some point along the way. Uh, I don't think I failed any of the, you know, the pretend major ones leaving certain intercertain. Yeah. Although kids, they're not really important. <laughs> they're not um, I don't think I fail any of those ever, but um, well, the one that annoys me in retrospect, it's, it's not that there was one specific thing, but I definitely failed at doing it mm-hmm. and was Irish because I went to a primary school in Ballon Road, County Mayo in the 70s and um, you were mostly expected to speak Irish. And so my Irish was really good at 12. Oh, and then I went to school in, in County Meath after that, uh, near my granny lived in Betty's town. And uh, did you go to a boarding school? Yes. Was it? Oh, OK. It's not there anymore. Well, it is there now, but now it's a mixed uh, day school. And is it, at it, at, is it like an all boys boarding school? It kind was. Of when I went there, okay. it was all boys boarding school run by uh, Franciscans. And um, it was kind of the place that, you know, uh, farmers from Meath and that sent their sons. And it wasn't part <laughs> at all. <laughs> Um, we weren't allowed to play, you know, foreign sports. Yeah. So no soccer. Just no a good guy. Just yeah. a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I went there um, for secondary school and Irish went from being something that was just in my life to being the most boring, awful subject. Uh, you know, where you're the usual, you're learning peg and 
you know, poems from hundreds of years ago and oh, all the stuff, it's just dead stuff to me. And it just became my least favorite, you know, class. And I, I basically mentally just dropped out. And by the time I left secondary school, I could hardly put a sentence together anymore. That's so sad. So you were nearly yeah. to 12 and then... Yeah, like it just... It, like it's funny because I wouldn't have even thought your brain was capable of just dumping everything you'd learned. Mm. Turns out it, it, you are capable of that. Oh, 100%. And yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm, I imagine that if, you know, I packed myself off to the Gale Thugs for a couple of months, it'd probably come back eventually. But right now, if somebody, you know, started talking in Irish, I'd really struggle. Yeah, I'd be the same. I was actually quite... I had the opposite experience in primary school. I hated it. And then I actually quite got quite good because I went to the Gael Talk oh, yeah. in secondary school. And I was really good, I'd say, by sixth year. And now I've forgotten everything because mm. I've had no use for it, like, at all yeah. since I finished school. And I would find it extremely difficult to have yeah. a two-minute conversation. I, but I really regret it because, I, you know, I, I'd like to be able to speak about it. And, of course, every now and then I think, oh, I'll go do a class and, you know, whatever and get back into it. But then there's a million other you know, draws on my time. And mm. sometimes I think, well, I could spend the time, you know, struggling away, learning, you know, Irish verbs, or I could, you know, learn how to steam curl my hair. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> that's more practical in my world. So, um, so that's what happens in the end. And like at the time, um, when I was a teenager, then I went to France every summer to work and I became good at French. And to me, the difference then was French was uh, something I could use I was using it every summer. Um, I felt like it opened up another part of the world to me and I was able to go traveling and stuff. And it has st- stood me in good stead ever since because no matter what the language is, you know, there's all, usually if you can't find the right word in whatever language it is, you know, if you have a bash of the French, it might get through. And and Irish just seemed, you know, unpractical in that yeah. way and unexciting. And the, di- the, the difference of, I don't even know nowadays, but at the time, the way they were taught reflected that, you know, French, we were in French class, we were watching TV, you know, French TV shows and learning how to, you know, buy donuts in a yeah. French shop or whatever, you know, <laughs> so and, more and Irish class was all peg and mm. that stuff. And I just I just started to hate it when I was a kid. And um, so, yeah, so I would say I failed in that sense at learning Irish, uh, which is something I regret. But And what were you like in school? Were you kind of a um, bit of a rebel or a, a good uh, kid? A little. Um, you know, so well, boarding school. Um, you know, there are there are there are some people whose just personality and character and all that uh, thrive at boarding school. Mm. There are some people uh, who get by, and there's a percentage of people who should never be at boarding school. Uh, they're just have a horrible, miserable time, especially with this. I think a single sex you know, boarding school. It's sort of survival of the fittest kind of vibe yeah. about it, and even if the you know the the adults in the room are uh, have a fair amount of control, at the same time they're not down in the you know the pits with all the boys, and uh, and so some boys had an absolutely miserable time and should never have been sent there. And if their parents only knew the misery they were going through, they never would have. Um, I was lucky; I never had a difficult time. I was never the homesick type. Mm. Um, I. You know, it was mouthy and confident, so uh, I got on fine with all the bad boys and I got on fine with all the nerds. Um, I had a perfectly reasonable time. I hated it. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely hated it because it was like a jail. But it was you grand. Know, <laughs> you, you were absolutely controlled every moment of every day. And so I found all the ways that I could to rebel against that. But, um, but you know, I had a perfectly reasonable time and I, you know, there was, I don't have any bad 
things about it, really. Um, there was bad stuff going on, but I was lucky enough that it didn't really, you know, affect me. Like there was a, yeah. a, a, one of the, the it was Franciscan, um, Franciscans and uh, one of them, the priests, you know, in Leisure, we, we all knew at the time that he was abusing boys and uh, uh, all the boys knew it. And so all the adults knew it too. There's no, all this bullshit. Oh, we didn't know. People knew. Um, and he was, oh, I think he's dead now, but he was certainly convicted and years later and mm. all that. Um, and we were all aware of that, but he, you know, I never, he, you know, he never picked on me or anything. Um, so I had a perfectly reasonable time. Yeah. And I have no regrets about going there. I think it was good for me in a way. Um, what do you think of... I was lucky, I think. What do you think of single sex schools now? Um, I mean, I, I don't really see what the point is mm. in them. Uh, I don't think that you learn anything, you know, more. Uh, in fact, you probably learn stuff less, maybe. Mm. Um, the, the thing about school is, though, I look back and it's a bit like I'm sort of joking about saying that the insert and the leaving cert are important or whatever. But there's a sense of that, to me... Um, in that it's all fake and it doesn't bear that much on my life, you know, since I left school and things that seemed at the time so important. And sometimes I always remember every now and then, you know, past pupil would come to visit, you know, I don't know, they're passing by or something and they come in and then they might even come into a class and, you know, the, because the guy who's teaching you that class was, as, you know, had some relationship with this guy and, mm. and they were kind of all getting nostalgic. And then the past people would sometimes say, or, or usually after he's gone, you know, the priest would say to the class, oh, boys, you know, one day you look back and you think, these are the best days of your lives. <laughs> and I like, used to really? sit there thinking, <laughs> I, I mean, just, I, I, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to you know, kill myself. I, you yeah. know, I, you know, but, um, but you know what I mean? If this is as good as it gets, because, yeah. you know, it was just relenting monotony and boringness. Um, but as I got older, I sort of sometimes meet people who were in school and at the time they were like, you know, the captain of the football team or whatever. And they were really one of the lads. They were one of the A boys, mm. you know, the top of the pile. And of course, after you leave school, nobody gives a shit if you were the captain of the football team. Yeah, nobody cares. And, you know, and then, then, then he's just like everybody else. And he has to s struggle his way through college or whatever and he'll get a job. And he's got then he's got a family to raise and all sorts of things. And, you know, he's not the captain of the football team and nobody gives a crap anymore. Yeah. So all that stuff that seems so important just wasn't. It's so consuming. Like, I'm from Turles, um, like, massive hurling town. Like, yeah. it is just everything. And I couldn't believe when, like, I didn't care about hurling. I didn't like it. Yeah. And I couldn't believe when I moved up to Dublin that nobody cared. That, like, yeah. it wasn't, nobody yeah. cared if, if yeah. the lads could hurl. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was like, yeah. what? And so often it's true, you know, that you know, the, um, yeah, the boys who were those lads, you know, maybe it really was the best time of their maybe lives it was, because they've yeah. never had that sort of, you know, I'm the top of the pack since. Mm. Um, and often then when I think back and I meet people along the way and, you know, it's the boys maybe who weren't having such a great time, who were sort of nerds and picked on a bit, are the ones that are now ruling the world and yeah. they're, you know... Millionaires yeah, and such. And employing the, the ones who were on the football team. Mm. It's just... It's it's a it's a weird little fake world created in school that just disappears the second you leave. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a funny one. You mm. know? I sometimes it's one of the times though too. God, I'm going off on a tangent here, but <laughs> like I always have this very clear memory. One day of um, I'd been uh, lying in the park. It was a beautiful sunny day, and I was lying in Marion Square, and I had worked that evening. You know, I was always uh, working in the evening in drag and all that, 
And I sort of, and I even, I don't know who's, who's this going out to, but I, was, I smoked a little joint. That's great. At, that <laughs> at that time in my life. And I was just in a lovely warm space. And then I think, oh God, I better go to work, you know. So I pick up my newspaper, my little rug, and I start, you know, have my shorts, my flip flops on. And I start <laughs> flopping back to my apartment, you know, to get my, you know, stuff together and mm. heading to work. And as I'm walking along uh, Mount Street, and Mountie has all those old Georgian houses and then in, a lot of them now are offices and in there are these basement offices too and I'm walking around there's this owl lad standing outside on the pavement and clearly he's working in this basement office and he's having a cigarette outside yeah. and as I pass by he, he just goes Rory? And my first thought is oh god he's some friend of my dad's um you know I'm trying to struggle who is this? And then, as, and then he stops me talking and I realise oh my god he was in my class in school wow and now, I am totally projecting, but my sense was like he and he was one of those boys and he left school. He went to college. He's gotten this job and then maybe he got married and he has kids and he has kids to support and he can't just, you know, be like me and wander off and do whatever he wants. He has to, you know, work hard and stick at this job that he doesn't particularly like, I'm guessing, where he's working in a basement office because he has kids to send, you know, pay for school books and all that stuff, and maybe he's got a house in the suburb, and it's a two-hour bloody car journey. And life has really worn him down mm. in a way. And he looked 20 years older than I did. And I'm there in my flip-flops, a little stoned, <laughs> and I'm in my shorts on a sunny day. And I'm just thinking, oh, God, wow. like school is just, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's the nothing. Blip in your life yeah. along the way. And I, but it is one of those awesome moments when I thought, God, there's some great things about being gay. <laughs> because... <laughs> You know, certainly at that time, because this is even 15 years ago or something, um, you know, certainly me and most gays like me didn't have to worry about raising kids. I could just faff along and do my own thing, do the things that I was interested in because I didn't have to worry about all of that. And mm. also because at the time, really, you know, no one was going to give me a real job. You know, I'm a, I was a flaming gay and all that. Things have changed, thank God. Um, so all of that stuff that was expected of him, the Toyota and the house in the suburbs and you know the all of that stuff wasn't expected of me mm. so I felt very free to just live my life as I chose and yeah, not really worry so much about things and that turned out to be a huge asset for me yeah um, and I don't think I think if I was straight I would have been pressured to find a girl do you think your life would have went down, that way married. maybe well here's the other thing I often think <laughs> You know, I'm so thrilled about being gay because I sometimes worry that if I'd been straight, I would have been an absolute dick. Really? Why? <laughs> well, because, <laughs> because the world is made for straight Rory. Do you like, think? I would have been so comfortable in this mm. world if I'd been straight. You know, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm reasonably man. smart. <laughs> I, you know, I'm book smart. <laughs> I'm, you know, not horrible looking. I, um, you know, I can speak okay, I'm presentable, I would have gotten a decent, you know, I would have gone to a good university and gotten a decent degree, I would have gotten a good job in mm. some, you know, big company, um, and I might be now driving around in a, you know, BMW just being a dick, because, <laughs> because I never would have had to, you know, I would, I would always have been comfortable. The world is literally made for straight Rory. Mm. And being queer was the thing that sort of whipped that all away from me and made the world less comfortable for me, sometimes very uncomfortable. Yeah. And 
But that, I think, in the end, made me a better person. It's made you more empathetic. Exactly. It mm-hmm. made me empathize with other people who the world is not built for. And, um, and so even if their things are not my things, I know what it feels like to be on the outside. Mm. And, and I think that has made me a nicer, better person. Not just nicer, but better. And so I'm really glad for that. Now, of course, you know, I have a straight brother and he's lovely. <laughs> so maybe I mean really cool. But well he has his own issues too, because everybody has their issues. But um but do you know what I mean? I do. I yeah. sometimes see these guys and I think, look at that dick, and then I think maybe that, that would have been, been me. Hmm. So I mean I hope not, because my parents are lovely and I think they would have, you know, instilled in me stuff, but I do worry about that. You would have so, the kind of straight white male God, privilege. Exactly. I mean, I still have a lot of that. Yeah. You know, a middle class background and, uh, you know, reasonable looking white guy. And, you know, I get all the benefits of that. Yeah. But I'm aware of that because of my queerness. Yeah. And, I, you know, I certainly hope and, you know, that has made me a better person. Mm-hmm. I feel like it has. Okay. Sorry, I'm not finished on my last thing about that. Okay. <laughs> because this is for young people, is it? Mostly. I, I would say that um, I would like it to be for everybody, oh, but okay. it will probably. <laughs> well, I will just say that you know all the stuff that I worried about in school, the things that bothered me a bit, actually turned out to be the things that I like most about me now, and they're also the things that other people value most in me now. Wow, that is an incredible thing to think about the things that you were so insecure about yeah. as a young person. Like I know that probably if you are mm. 16 and listening to this you're getting like, picked on school you might away. think oh god you know, <laughs> f- you know F you. Uh, but it is true all the stuff that I worried about and I thought was going to make things difficult for me and were making things difficult for me at the time turned out in the end to be the things that I appreciate most about myself and more, maybe more importantly other people also appreciate more most in me. Hmm. So I love that. Yeah, it's a total flip. All right. Next number. Oh God, numbers. Um <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna stick with the kind of obvious ones that I think every thirteen. Oh thirteen. Okay. <laughs> Rory O'Neill. Yes. Could you please try and spell Oh God, yes. The word acquiesce. Acquiesce. Now is it A C Q or just A Q? I'm gonna go with A Q. Mm-mm. ACQ. Yes. ACQ. U I E S E S S E. No, wrong. Spell it, spell it. Oh, it's an O. Yes. Do you want to give it one more go? You're actually very, very close. ACQ. ACQ. Yes. Quies. U I E S C E. Woo! But you know, if I'd been able to write it down, I would have recognized it. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can recognize it. You know, when I see it. I give people spelling questions, but I'm a terrible <laughs> speller. <laughs> okay, next number. Uh, 11. Uh, 11. Which of our society's failures frustrates you the most? Oh, well, that's a big question. It is a big question. Um, uh, well, it depends on how sort of, I guess, um, big or what you want to go. If, if you say to me, what one thing do you think we should just change immediately? Uh, uh, yeah. In Irish society, I would say the direct provision system. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it's horrible. Um, I think the way that we now think about Magdalene laundries is the way we're going to think about um, direct provision in years to come. I think it's a failure on every level. It yeah. fails both the people in it. 
which is you know the biggest thing. Um, but it also uh, fails the country. Yeah. And um, because we are um, making the same mistakes that other countries made before us, and we have had the opportunity to see those mistakes, and yet we're still not learning from them. Um, because, for example, there's all this stuff at the moment, you know, um, where they are going to, you know, they say they're going to open a direct vision center in some town, and then people get upset, and and you know, right wing, you know, groups are taking advantage of that, and um, and so it doesn't help anybody. It um, doesn't. No. It's just a r stupid, awful system, which I understand that when it was first introduced. They thought, oh, okay, so we'll just look after these people, you know. But it was designed to be for six months. People were supposed to be in there for no more, more than more than six months. And they're there for years. And if it was just for six months, I could say, okay, well, fine, everybody can put up with six months. Um, but people are in there for years and years and years, mm. and they're in these weird limbos. And it it gives it allows space then for bad actors to uh, get in those you know spaces and get into people's head and you know you know spread their sort of racist ideas yeah. and uh use the sort of the all of this stuff um to stoke up fears and nonsense and um so yeah do you do you know um clan a county Watford? it's like a seaside yes. mobile yeah so i um all my childhood we used to go down to clan a and my parents still have a mobile home down there but in recent years, so they had a hotel in Clane mm -hmm. and it just kind of became abandoned. Nobody's using it. Mm -hmm. So um, then they wanted to open it up um, for Syrian refugees to live in. Mm -hmm. um, and the people like who used the park went uproar. Anyways, uh, there's Syrian refugees living there now, but it's just the saddest thing. So they have, for the kids, they've like coined off basically like big barriers between the Syrian kids and the Irish kids. I was like, how is this, how is this allowed to happen? Mm. Like, who is letting this happen? Like, mm. it's like you literally walk through to go to the shop to buy like your yeah. 99, go down to the beach. Yeah. You walk, see all these like Syrian kids mm. playing, but they're like behind barriers. So nobody yeah. else, we can't, they can't mix with the Irish. Like, yeah. what the hell? Well, it's like, you know, I, I'm from Mayo and uh, they recently, you know, announced they were going to open a, a, a direct vision center in Ackle for, I think, 12, was it? I think 12 women. And immediately there's people against it. And uh, and here's the thing. Some of those people are saying they're, they're, they're protesting against it and they're going to stop it because because it's a bad system, direct vision system. Yes, it is. But were you pro protesting about that uh, before this was announced? No, you weren't. And that, you know... Uh, and it's also just, you know, they're nonsense. They're saying, oh, we can't handle this. We don't have the facilities and all that. It's 12 women. Thousands of tourists go to Ackle every summer and you're all able to mm. deal with that. But you can't deal with these 12 women. And I think it is a terrible system. And you shouldn't be putting 12 um, asylum seekers from different parts of the world who come with, you know, from traumatic backgrounds and all that, dumping them in, in, on Ackle, which is lovely yeah, but in its own way but my, my god it's hard yeah. and it's barren and if you've ever been there in the winter it is tough in, um, and it doesn't have you know all the necessary um, to, to, for these people and you know if they want to go and see their lawyer about something or you know that's a bus trip to wherever Galway or Dublin and you know you know they get you know, a handful of euro every week to spend you know and there, there's that's all blown on that bus trip or whatever it, it is a terrible system um, 
But that isn't why the, those people are were protesting against it. And some of them have been used by these, you know, outside people who come in to stir up, you know, their racist nonsense. Mm. Um, so it fails everybody. It's a horrible system. Um, it mostly fails the people who are in it, who have every right to come here and seek asylum. Um, and and I just it also it sticks in my craw most about ACO. A, because I'm from Mayo. Mm. And that isn't the Mayo that I grew up with. And also... Because of all the feckin' places, Ackle, <laughs> where every single family has peoples all over the world, who, and most of whom were not seeking asylum, they were economic refugees, and plenty of them weren't the legal economic refugees either. Yeah. And they are now, you know, all around the world, and people are lobbying their own, our government to, to go to America and try and get, you know, their, you know, residency legalized and all that stuff. And I'm just, you like, it's baffling. Look in the mirror. Yeah. It's absolutely baffling. Um, and, and I have a tiny bit of sympathy for these people who are sort of aren't terribly aware of this stuff. And then somebody comes from outside and it's one of these, you know, fascisty types and they start planting these little worries and seeds, you know, in the minds of these people. And, and, and then suddenly they hear this stuff and they believe this stuff. Tiny bit, but not much, because feckin' read something. Go and, you know, meet some of these people. Do you know, stop listening to these fascist nonsense mm. stuff. So, oh, I'm getting annoyed now. <laughs> but it's just, you know, it's my county. Yeah. And I'm, 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 I'm ashamed yeah. and embarrassed of yeah. it. Mm. All right. We'll move on to the next yes. question. Right? That's very Irish of me, isn't it? It's my county. I know, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. Like, it is. Uh, what number would you like, Rory? Uh, four. Four. Okay. <laughs> I have... A oh, it's a fucking maths question, is it? <laughs> no, is it? it's not. It's a bit okay. of a... It's a riddle. Right. When you know the answer, you're like, like oh, it's so obvious. But anyways, uh, I have a cake and a table named after me and I'm used all around the world. What am I? A cake and a table? Yeah. A cake and a table. And you said it's so obvious. <laughs> table. Thinking, what kind of table? Side table, <laughs> dining table, uh, a table, a cup, co- co- coffee cake. Yes. Coffee. <laughs> Wait, come on! <laughs> uh, I didn't think you get it. Well, also, you just table and cake. Like you, you didn't say a drink. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just go through the different yeah. types of tables. Very good. Well done. You're not failing at all. Uh, okay, next number. Uh, 20. Number 20. Oh. What part of failure is impossible to put a positive spin on? Um, what part of failure is impossible? Well, I mean, it doesn't apply to all failures, but I think um, a lot, not all, because there's so many things we can do, but um, I think if I, the, the things that I, you know, would fail at, it's often my own fault that I didn't, you know, work hard enough or smart enough. Mm. And it's hard then for me to put a positive in that because literally, yeah, you didn't work hard enough. Yeah. Um, for example, I, I went to college to, to study, you know, I went to our college and I was studying design and I thought, you know, this is going to be my thing because I had always taken refuge in a way um, in drawing and all that stuff. Um, and after three years, with only one year to go, I realized I don't want to do this. Um, mm. 
Why? This is a mistake. You know, it's not what was my... Because I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I like doodling and drawing pictures to pass the time, <laughs> which is very different from, you know, worrying about typefaces and, you know, all that stuff um, that graphic designers have to do. Um, it's, you know, it's very constricted very often, graphic design and all that. Um, and at the time, I thought, oh, God, I've just kind of wasted three years you know, my life or whatever. And I also felt bad because, um, you know, my parents were expecting me to finish this thing and have a piece of paper and go on and get, you know, the, the, a job they understood. Mm. Um, all that stuff. Um, but of course, looking back now, uh, it was exactly the right thing. What did you I, do straight well, after? Because I, I, I actually finished it. I finished the oh, last right. year. But um, what... At, so the, I went to what is now the Dunleary Institute of Technology and all that. At the time, it was just called the Dunleary School of Art and Design. And it was tiny. Uh, I think there was 200 students in total. And half of wow. those were in the foundation year, which doesn't even exist anymore um, for our students. But, uh, and, and beca- but because it was tiny, it meant that you could sort of push the boundaries of things and like, you know, a graphic design student could sort of wander into the fine arts sculpture department and make a thing because everybody kind of knew each other. It was that sort of vibe. And, um, and I had done the three years, I just one more year to go and I thought of all those things, well, my parents would like me to get a piece of paper and blah, 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 blah. So I did finish it, but I was also able to say to them, uh, I don't want to be a graphic designer. I want to finish out the course. Um, so I've decided I want to design a, dr- a drag show. And because in your final year, that's what you do. You do one major project, um, which is then assessed at the end of the year. And whatever. And, um, and I persuaded them to let me do that. You know, I said, oh, well, I'll do lots of graphic elements. There'll be like posters and, you know, tickets and um, I do illustrations to project on stage. And I design a costume and a set, all those kind of things. So they let me do it. Um, and so in looking back, first of all, I learned a lot from my four years in the college. I enjoyed it and I did learn lots that has stood me in good stead since. Mm-hmm. Um, then designing that drag show, which was meant to be just an academic exercise, you know, at the end of a year, it was all done. And I'd made these crazy costumes out of surgical gloves and I built a set and I'd you know, written the whole thing. And it seemed stupid not to do it. So as a kind of a joke, I performed it, you know, for the other students and all of that. Um, and that's what started me doing drag. And that's all worked out well enough for me. Um, so in a way, at the time, it seemed like I had just really messed up and wasted, you know, four years of my life and um, all of that stuff. But in retrospect, it was amazing. Was our college <laughs> your first introduction to drag or had you? Uh, yeah, well, I didn't have any introductions right in the art college, but in the summers I was, you know, going off and doing things and I was becoming interested in clubbing and all that. And I was at the time I was reading the Face magazine. You're probably too young to even know what that is, but before the <laughs> internet, if you want to see a cool thing, you have to buy a cool magazine. And one of them, you know, the Face magazine was the coolest. And um, and I'd be reading in that all about, you know, the club things in London and, you know, queer stuff. And, you know, it all just seemed like another world to me, you know, stuck in Dunleary in the 80s. Um, and so in the summers, then I was going off to London to work and all that stuff and spending most of my nights running around, you know, clubland and seeing queens and time. performers <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. And that all just seemed exciting and fun and interesting to me, much more than typefaces and all of that. Um, 
And so when I came back and I you know, designed that, you know, there wasn't really a drag scene here at all. It was Mr. Pussy, um, who I love, Alan, um, anti-pussy. But uh, Pussy, you know, <laughs> would, uh, didn't really perform in the gay scene or anything. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I didn't have anything to model it on. Um, and so I just you know, did whatever I want. And, but in years since, all the stuff that I learned in art college has stood me in great stead in the drag world. Um, you know, makeup is in ways just like painting. You just have to get used to the different, you know, product. Um, but it's it's a kind of painting or sculpture too. Um, it's an art form. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and the costuming and all that stuff. And um, and so many of the stuff that I did learn in college, I have used in my you know drag stuff ever since. Um, you know, like when I first started in drag, I used to use a lot of puppets and stuff because I made puppets in college. Um, you know, all that kind of thing. That's all stood me. Good. And of course, when I started track, um, I, I used to make my own shoes. Because before the internet, if you had a shoe my size, where'd you get a lady's oh, shoe yeah. from? Like, you can't, you couldn't. Um, How did you and make all that shoes? stuff? Uh, cork tiles. <laughs> How does one go about that? <laughs> well, I would like uh, glue layers of cork tiles together to make like a platform and a heel. And then add straps to them and all. You know, I was making sandals. Right. <laughs> yeah, but you Resourceful. know, um, it was absolutely just impossible. Yeah, like uh, I, I, there's a part of me that resents it now. You know, because all the kids, well, first of all, they all think it's a perfectly legitimate career choice these days. Yeah, how do you hundreds feel? Hundreds and hundreds of them. How do you feel about it being so in the mainstream? Like it is I, so in the mainstream now. About it. Really? Well, because I think I got into it because it was underground and transgressive and, um, you know, discombobulating, mm. confronting, and punk. You know and two fingers to everything. And and now that's so mainstream, it's sort of none of those things at the moment. Um, but I think it'll, you know, it's so popular and so trendy and so now that we all know that that means in a few years time, it'll, it'll just, be considered yeah. naff and old hat and all that. And maybe I'll be more comfortable when it goes back to that. <laughs> but, 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 but there's a part of me that then, you know, these the baby drags, um, they, they, they're out in drag or the very first time ever or, you know, they ask some queen, can they do try a thing at their show? And the queen says, OK, and then they turn up and it's their first time ever in drag and they look pretty good. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? And that is because they're sitting at home with YouTube videos for months and they're learning all the tricks of the trade and how to you know, cover your eyebrows and how to do your makeup and wigs. And they go online and they buy a wig, decent wig from China for next to nothing. And, and there are YouTube tutorials teaching them how to do your, do the, you style the wigs and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's none of that. Like literally nothing. Mm. When I was doing so, for when I was doing drags first, every drag queen looked terrible for 10 years. Because <laughs> it was all just trial and error. Yeah. And every now and then some older queen would say, oh, don't do that, you know, dear. And, you know, give you a little tip about something. And so that, you know, get better. Um, and you're at home making your own shoes or whatever. <laughs> and so I, sometimes I, I see this, you know, and like, part of me resents it, I think. You didn't work for that, bitch. Yeah, well, <laughs> when things go, come into like the mainstream, they just get a bit more boring, don't they? Like when, ev when something's everywhere. Well, I, because it's, it's all driven to by the RuPaul's Drag Race, there's a, there is a there, there's a tendency for them all to kind of look the same because they're all learning it from this one sort of source. Yeah. Way. And, and that does annoy me a little bit because nowadays, no matter where you go, in a way, all these people who consider themselves to be big drag fans because they're going to do it that way, they measure all drag against this yardstick, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. And, you know, 
most of my very favorite drag queens in the world, the ones that I look up to most or admire most, or, you know, most of those have never been anywhere near RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. And a lot of them wouldn't even be able to because they turn up at the audition looking the crazy way they do, doing the playing the ukulele and whatever. And the producers of that TV show wouldn't know what to do with them because it, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the... Um, so... The, the, it's become this very narrow thing or people see it as this very narrow thing um, and it's not narrow I mean that's the joy of drag you know you can do drag with a tea towel and a crayon you know it's not about mm. that it's bigger than that um, so you know on one level I think it's great that people sort of know more about it and they understand more about it and um, and you know for me it's certainly was fun anyway to hear all these expressions <laughs> that they're usually just part of my little tiny world now being used by teenagers on the bus. I mean, that's sort of mad to me. Um, How do you feel but, like about being the drag queen of Ireland, the one that everyone looks up to? Yeah, but that's not, you know, strictly true. Um, uh, because, um, you know, in, in the world that I come from, and, you know, the sort of gay world, um, you know, there's also lo lots of others. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and Shirley and Veda um, have been, you know, plowing you know that world for t over 20 years too you know um now it is true that i once saw shirley at this crazy after party and with a tea towel on his head uh <laughs> doing um kind of you know and again drag with just a tea towel nothing else um doing uh, olympic routines uh, gymnastic routines and just being the funniest person in the world and i was like I so said, we're doing this drag competition thing and you should definitely enter <laughs> and um, that's how he got into the drag world um so uh But for years, it was kind of just the three of us. And um, but if you're in the gay world, you know, everybody knows them all. You mm. know? Maybe if you're, um, you know, you go to uh, Wexford <laughs> and you ask knowledge, maybe I might be the person that comes to your head. But that's not, you know, yeah. Although Shirley's been yes. doing the bingo. <laughs> You'll know Shirley, too. Yeah. All um, right. Next number. Uh, nine. Number nine. Um, has anyone you loved ever really failed you? Um, well, of course, um, you know, in relationships that happens. Mm. Um, thankfully, you know, none of my family or great friends or anything have ever, you know, failed me in any way. Um, but of course, I've, I've had boyfriends over the years. Um, Uh, you know, that sort of, yeah. Have you ever been totally brokenhearted? I I have. Um, there, there was always like um, I have this kind of weird thing about me, and there's always this pattern. I'd have these boyfriends, and I'd be like mad about them, and think they were mad about me, and then and then they'd break up with me, and that would come as a big shock to me, and I'd be devastated. And then they'd come back, <laughs> and we'd get back together. But then for me, it was never the same afterwards because they had burst this bubble or something. And and I could never really trust them again after that because it I, they weren't ex the person that I thought they were in some way. And it took them breaking up me for me to see that. And so then I would end up breaking up with them. Really? That happened like five or six times. Because they, you felt... I suppose let down. You felt yeah, that they because had... I felt like okay, so their feeling wasn't the same as mine was, and and them sort of breaking my heart like that. And even though they came back later, the fact that they did it first 
changed how I saw them or something. Now, is that them failing me? Probably not. You know, it depends on how you look at it. It, it is. How well, it felt like it to yeah, me. If it, yeah. It feels like um, So, yeah, for, uh, that happens a lot. <laughs> well, like five or six times, I think. Um, <laughs> and I thought that that's how all my relations would always end. <laughs> you know, cause it, but in a way, there's a sort of satisfaction to it. It means that as well, because in the end, I'm the one who's like, actually, no. You're you know. like, I can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, um, thankfully, I, that, that didn't happen then. Always, it turned out. Um, and of course, now, bizarrely, I'm married. Yeah, how's married life? It's good. Um, I say bizarrely because... Did you ever think you'd see yourself no. married? And like, I used to kind of think it was funny that I became so associated with marriage equality because I always thought, I'm not the marrying type. You know, I'm not going to begin. <laughs> I used to say that to people all the time. And, and I would always say that, um, you know, to me, it was an equality issue. Um, I didn't want to get married. I thought it was, you know, kind of a boring thing to do and a uh, very mainstream thing to do. And I was a radical queer and I had found, you know, when I had come out, it was at the time, you know, homosexuality was still illegal. Yeah. You know, and so I had come out at a time when in order to get it was, and it was so hidden and underground. You know, nowadays, anybody can tell you where the George is. Yeah. But, it, but in that, those days, nobody could tell you where the George was. People didn't even know if there was gay bars. So just to find other gay people was a real struggle. And before the internet and all that, how do you, you know, if I told you to just walk out now in a strange city and find some gay people, how would you do it if you didn't, couldn't use the internet? It'd be hard. Um, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> um, a small ad in the back of a Hot Press magazine. And it would say, um, it was a little ad that was there every uh, issue for icebreakers. And icebreakers was like a, like a kind of a group uh, for new homosexuals. Oh, and God. they would meet on the, like the first Tuesday or Thursday or whatever it was of the month in the Clarence Hotel. And which was before it became cool and was bought by U2 and all that stuff. This is before that. And you'd go along to the Clarence Hotel and they'd have like, you know, the lobby. There'd be like the list of what the functions going on in the different rooms. And you'd go into the room and there'd be like a, a chair circle and there'd be like 12, you know, nervous gays and then two proper gays who were like leading the meeting <laughs> and giving you cups of tea and biscuits and all. And, and um, would you just have the chat? Or would you yes, go for a no, point totally. after? Well, what it was was, you, you sat around in a circle and I always used to laugh because it felt like an Alcoholics Anonymous like, hey, meeting hey, and it probably gay. was in the next room. <laughs> and you go, hi, my name's Rory and I'm a gay. Um, and basically, you just chatted and it was just to meet other people like you in a sense. And then, and to me, it was just uncomfortable and weird. I've never been a, you know, chair circle person. And um, <laughs> um, but at the end of the meeting, the two you know, proper gays who were, you know, leading it sort of, they were like, well, you know, does anybody, would anyone like, we're going to go for a drink? Does anybody want to come? And I said, sure, I want to go. And they brought us to um, Hooray Henry's, which was, um, it was, it's, was in the uh, Paris Cortana Center. Okay. And there's a kind of a bar club there now in the same place. And mm. um, and it was a kind of, a, it was a gay club. All and right. I had passed that a thousand times and had no idea. And that's all I needed. I just need to be shown, here's where the gays are. So I never went to another icebreakers meeting <laughs> because I didn't need to. They showed me where the gays are. You know, so, I, so they took me there and I went home with a you know, hairdresser with frosted tips to his bedsit and rat mines that night. And, you know, that's all I needed. But... <laughs> But in order to get to that point, then you had to really just reject everything. You know, the ordinary stuff that you've been brought up to believe in, in yeah. a way. Because you had to get to a real point 
before you then went out searching for the gays and finding them. And, and in a way, you had to sort of just turn around on the steps of Hurry Henry's and give two fingers to the rest of everything and, and say, I'm throwing my lot in with this. And so it meant that the people who reached that point and were in Hurry Henry's were, in a sort of self-selecting way, they were almost necessarily radical. They had thought, none of that is working for me. Um, and so there was a, a sense in the gay community then that you, you, know, you couldn't get a good job. Wasn't a, no bank was going to hire you. You oh. couldn't you know, get the Toyota and the, the nurse and come out to all your family and all that stuff. All that stuff. So by almost necessity, you were starting from scratch. And it meant that there was an, a sense in the gay community then that you had to make up your own ways of being happy, find other ways of being happy. And so, you know, maybe you wanted to go and live on an island with a lesbian commune and make cheese, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I don't know, have two boyfriends and, you know, whatever. It, it didn't yeah. matter because you were not going to be taking one home for Christmas to meet your parents. And so there was a sense of possibility or something, a radical possibility. So there's a part of me that still wants that and feels that. And so to me, marriage was quite a dull choice. But I recognize that most gays are just as ordinary, just as boring, just as, as exciting else. or beautiful or brilliant or dull or whatever as everybody else. Mm. And most of them do want all that stuff because why wouldn't they? Everybody else has been brought up to want it and they want it. And so if they want to get married and move to, you know, Balbriggan, well, let them. So and so to me, it was purely an equality issue. Uh -huh. And so I thought I was never going to... You know, I basically, I wanted the straights to have some of our radicalism and I wanted us to be able to have uh, access the boredom yeah. <laughs> if we wanted. Um, I didn't think I was ever going to, but I still felt passionately that everybody should have... Be, should be able to have the same ambitions, no matter what that ambition is, even course, if I think it's a boring yeah. one. Yeah. Um, now, as it happened, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I fell in love uh, with a, you know, a, a, a Brazilian, lovely, and um, <laughs> and we were going out, and then it was getting to the got to the point where he was looking to study. You know, he, his English is great, and all he done the stuff he come from, um, and he was looking basically to sign up to university courses that were expensive and that he didn't even really want to particularly do, but just so he could we could stay, stay together. Stay in Ireland, yeah. And then the obvious solution was to get married. Yeah. Now, the radical me will say to you, you know, the system isn't using me. I'm using the system. <laughs> um, but in a way, in the beginning, I resented it a little bit because I felt like I've been forced into getting married in order so we could stay together. And I thought that was still robbing something from us. Okay, in a way. yeah. But then when I would say that to straight people, they would go like, yeah, but everybody feels that. Everybody's <laughs> bounced into marriage eventually. But whether it's because, you know, I don't know, uh, she got pregnant and wants you know, to get married first or uh, jobs or, you know, you've been offered a job in another country and your spouse, uh, um, you know, family pressures, all sorts of things, biological clocks. Everybody or most people feel in some way that they got bounced into it in the end. And that made me just feel better. Right. OK, yes, I see that. It's a big it's as big a deal as you want it to be. Exactly. You know, yeah. And um, yeah. And uh, we had just the most beautiful, lovely day. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been good. And also there is a kind of a little 
psychological thing that I can't help feeling you're nice and connected in a way that yeah. I didn't expect. Yeah. So the picture, there's actually a question here, but never mind, I'm going to ask mm-hmm. it anyway. So the picture, so if you were to picture your future, like back at 18, like would your, would the picture be totally different now? Your, oh, your life? God, yeah. yeah. Well, this also touches back on the sort of the mainstreaming of drag thing because when I started doing drag, I was doing it for about 25 years before I thought, actually, I think this is my job. Because I never thought that it was a career. Wow. Um, you know, when I was in drag, there was one famous drag queen ever allowed. <laughs> you know, it, it had been Danny LaRue, it had been um, Lily Savage, and then RuPaul. Um, and as far as I was concerned, that was it. And we don't have here sort of the working men's club circuit type thing. So, you know, maybe in the UK, there were some working drag queens who plodded around, but, you know, they were never buying houses off their things either or anything. Um, it was always precarious. And it was never, I just thought it was a bit of extra fun. Um, I got into it because it was fun and you know, exciting and nutty and weird and punk. And um, and I just, event- and I always thought, oh, I won't be doing this in 10 years. I'll have to get a real job. And then eventually, 25 years into it, I thought, God, it looks like this is my job. And, um, and I wasn't qualified. I didn't know how to do anything else. Um, but so I never thought, A, it was a job. And B, I never thought it could be this, you know, that I would ever be considered, you know, mainstreamish or whatever. Mm. It was, I always thought it was going to be this weird thing that I was doing that nobody would understand. And, um, and so the idea that now, you know, like, I, I have struggled with the mainstreaming of drag thing, not just in the general sense, but also in a very personal way for years. Like, I would sit there thinking, can I still be the kind of discombobulating, radical, you know, confronting drag queen that I w- want to be always and be on the cover of the RTE guide? Like, it's, I don't know that I can, I still don't know the answer to that. I think and I can, can see in lots of ways I've been sort of mainstreamed or two and whatever. Um, but it's also allowed me to, you know, you know, have a life and uh, have a bank account. Yeah. Um, you know, like 15 years ago, if I had gone looking for a mortgage or something, the bank would have just laughed at me. Whereas now they don't, won't laugh at you just because you're a drag. You, you know. Yeah. Um, and, it, but it is, yeah, no, I, I could never, if you had told me this when I started, you know, when I was 18 or even when I was 25, I would have thought you were absolutely nuts. Um, and in a way, like I spent about 25 years trying to get people to take what I do more seriously because I've always, it's fun and brilliant and all that, but I'm also serious about it. And, yeah, um, of course. You know, I've thought deeply about it for many years, which always annoys me when these idiots on Twitter or something who've thought about drag for all of 10 seconds, you know, come at me about it. Um, but uh, um, it was always something serious to me. And then especially when I was sort of moving out of the nightclub scene a bit and going into theatres and all of that. And I'd be trying to get people to come to the show. And I know that most people think, they think, oh, but sure, I saw a drag queen when I was in Lanzarote that one time. So why would I want to go and see <laughs> another one in, in the theatre? You know, because they think it's all Lanzarote. the same. But you know what I mean? <laughs> they just think you're, you're putting on a frock and that's it. Um, and so I spent all these years trying to get people to take it more seriously. And now in a way... It's almost gone too far, especially in my personal case in Ireland, 
where people take everything I say so, so seriously. Yeah. You know, they, they want my serious opinion on everything. And, mm. um, you know, and it's a, it is a weird place to be in. I certainly never imagined it. Um, you know, if you told me that whenever, you know, Trinity College wants you to, would want you to come and talk about something, I would have just thought you're you're on drugs, you know, <laughs> and good ones, apparently. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, I couldn't have even imagined it. it. It just wasn't even something you would think. And where would you see yourself in five years' time? Probably pretty much exactly. Like five years isn't that much. Maybe, Ten years. Maybe <laughs> working a little less because I think in five years' time, drag is going to be considered so passé. Um, and my worry is that when that happens, we're going to be left with hundreds of young drag queens uh, and the same amount of work that there used to be or less even. Yeah. And it's going to become harder for the people, say like Veda or Shirley and me and whatever. Uh, those kind of people, it may be, it might become a bit harder even to find work because to make a career. Yeah, because it's going to be so considered passe. You know, I might be wrong about that. I certainly think in the gay world it'll just plod along the way it always has because it just always has. I think there's definitely an element like, I mean, my generation, like, I mean, I went and I studied to be an actor and so many of my friends are actors, yeah. musicians, artists. Um, because I suppose we're growing up being told you can do whatever you want. Mm. You know, you can be whatever you want to be. Yeah. So there, I think there's an element of that where there are more people like who are like, I want to be a drag queen, I'm going to be a yeah. drag queen. Whereas before there were very few who are brave enough to do that. Yeah, it's certainly it's less um, because it used to be considered worthless in a way. Um, and so there definitely was more like you were going to do this. And even in the gay world, like it, for example, it, you know, it made, made it hard to get boyfriends and all sort of stuff. Um, and now, you know, I don't think that's because, you know, now there's a sort of a glamour to it that there wasn't before. Um, but I, I mean, I think you're right. It's easier to be a drag queen now. There's, a, it's more acceptable. B, it's literally easier because you can get everything on the internet. Um, and, uh, and C, uh, you know, everyone's into it at the moment. I, I hope that in five years' time, it won't be a big backlash against it, but it's certainly not going to be as trendy and as cool. I and you think you'll be doing less? Um, no, I'll, I would imagine that I'll be doing something similar. Um, because in a way... You know, for a good while now, my drag has been, you know, my audience or whatever isn't the, um, you know, the ones who've just learned it from Drag Race yeah. much. Of course, I do get the added benefits. There's more, you know, extra gigs or whatever things. But, um, you know, my audience is older anyway, a bit anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I'll be fine anyway. I've always managed to be fine. Great. And also, uh, my husband is younger than me and uh, I make more money than he does at the moment. And I'm hoping that eventually he's going to make much more money than I do. And I'll just, you know, be the old deer the sitting old in deer the corner. With the know, dinner on the table. After. Yeah, I don't say that to him all the, the time. The you know, Payback time, you know, when I'm in my wheelchair, you know, you're going to be out there slaving away. <laughs> Gorgeous. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the bottle of water. Is this from the tap or is this really a bottle? It's really a bottle of water. Oh. I went all out. <laughs> all out. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Fail Harder. I really hope you enjoyed it. I would really appreciate any help in getting the word out there as this is a new podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, give it a share, uh, tell somebody about the podcast, um, that would be great. Also, feel free to get in touch on Instagram at Emma Jane Purcell um, or on Twitter at Emma Jane Purcell. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.